So before we take a deeper dive into this nature of human AI collaboration, what happens if we don't take into account the human side of the equation? In a sense that many folks in our audience say, oh, I thought the podcast was about AI. And here is a computer science and an aerospace engineer and the psychologist coming in and telling me, oh, we need to take into account that human part of the system. What happens if we don't? What happens if we ignore that part? And as we are flooded right now with all kinds of claims about AI, we let AI be AI. What are the dangers of doing that? Or should we do that? I'll start here. One big danger that I think about is the possibility that we spend a lot of money and time and smart people's energy building AI systems that never get used, even if they're actually useful systems. And I think this is one of the key distinctions that I think a lot about. Just because an AI system is useful, it could help someone do a job. That doesn't mean that that person will use that system. I know I have built systems, both AI systems and training systems, that were proven to be effective, but for a variety of reasons, some cosmetic, some deeper, they didn't pass the human sniff test. And so they didn't go into use. And so there's a lot of potential to build AI systems that could be very useful. That potential won't be realized unless we're also thinking about how to make sure these systems meet the acceptance criteria of the users and they go from being useful systems to becoming used systems. And so that distinction between a useful system and a used system and the fact that becoming a used system puts additional requirements on the underlying AI, I think is really important and something that that should get more attention. Greg, Fred, you want to add to that question about doomsday that will happen if we let AI be AI and we don't take into account humans? Yeah, well, there's many ways to get to doomsday. But yeah, no, I think it's a great point about being useful and usable. And I think I might only add to that, that, you know, implicit in that is that it's hard to imagine that in military operations, for instance, humans won't be involved. So in other words, the AI will be part of a team explicitly or implicitly. And so the effects of that team are going to be what matters. And so it's hard for me to even begin to think about why we wouldn't consider the AI in that larger context. If I could give you an episode from my past to illustrate what happens when you don't consider this So as a young engineer, I got to work on the space shuttle, working on an autopilot that went from Mach 28 down to Mach 5 hypersonics, huge range in altitudes and so forth. And I designed this incredible, wonderful system that flew, you know, followed the guidance commands and did all these wonderful things, uh, saved thousands of pounds of extra fuel and so forth, got it in the simulator and got the astronauts test fly it. And every single one of them hated it. And they said, this doesn't fly like an airplane. And I kept telling them, well, it's, it's not an airplane, you know, it's a blunt body doing a re-entry, you know. Anyway, it ended up being a failure in terms of acceptance by the pilot who was interacting with it, the set of pilots that would interact with it. It was not a case of AI, but it was a case of engineering and just did not fit the case of what they want to do. I might add, as a postscript, I've talked to a bunch of astronauts that actually flew the re-entry system that wasn't mine. And they never touched the stick, actually. They just let the thing go automatically. So I would have survived the sniff test. But I learned from that way back when that you just can't take the human out of the loop in these cases. Yes, thank you. 
So there is a human in the loop, on the loop. There is a lot of in the literature right now to understand in those complex systems where the human should be, especially when we have, and you make the distinction, Greg, about even if it's not AI, those complex systems that have human in them need to model the human and take the human into account to be not only accepted, but also eventually maybe to behave optimally. But there is a debate, and I don't know if it's a semantic debate, it's a real debate that has implication about how do we approach the design of an AI that augments the human work, doesn't replace it. We'll talk about that notion a little later in the podcast. But should we approach the design of the system, of the human system that is augmented by a capability that is AI-based as a tool or as a teammate? Is that just a semantic discussion or is that a real discussion that has implication for design? Wants to take that, the teammate versus tool aspect, specifically about AI, because AI has the capacity of learning and adapting and changing. And it's very natural for us humans to think of it as a teammate, like a human teammate will adapt and change and evolve with us. Want to take that on? You know, my first thought there is, We, the designers of the system, don't always get to pick. The users are going to relate to what we build in ways that are dependent on how we build it and may not be what we anticipated. And so humans have, you know, millions, tens of millions of years of experience working with other humans. And there's a lot of deep social, but also biological structures in the brain around collaborating with other humans. More recently, humans started working with tools and, you know, whether something is in that like a human category or that like a tool category is a judgment humans make all the time. And once we start building these AI systems that can speak, that can be making decisions, that can be understanding what the human's trying to do and helping, right? It slips closer and closer to that like another human or like another intelligence. And that evokes and activates a whole set of structures in humans about how to work with something. And so some of the promise of AI is that AI can be doing these things, you know, interacting more naturally, making decisions on its own under human's direction. Once you start to take advantage of that promise, you inevitably slip out of the tool category and into the, you know, I'll call it another intelligence category And then that brings with it a whole set of expectations and assumptions and biases that you need to take into account. You get into things like the uncanny valley, whether it's the physical manifestation uncanny valley of how a figure looks or the kind of decision-making uncanny valley of, you know, hey, this is acting kind of like a person, but not really like a person. So I think it's inevitable as we build towards what AI can do that we're going to start to be in this gray area between teammate and tool. And that means we need to take the teammate side of that seriously. I'll pick up on something you said and ask a question of Greg. In the example that you gave previously about your design for the shuttle re-entry system, would the kind of decision of design decision you would have made if that the control system, et cetera, was actually an artificial intelligence that had the capacity to adapt basically to the astronaut or to the user. Is there just a quantitative difference here in terms of the computational ability of one system versus another, or there's really a qualitative system in the way that Mike described 
So it was not just a tool for enabling the re-entry. It was also some kind of collaborative teammate that will be given to the astronaut. Would that have been different? Yeah, I think quite different. I think the problem would be you would like the autopilot or the AI to recognize that the pilot was frustrated with the response of the aircraft. And maybe a pilot or a co-pilot, maybe humans might have done that. And then the second part would have been much easier to actually adapt the control laws, which is what North American Rockwell did. They changed the control laws so that the pilot would make it feel like it was an airplane. It cost an extra $60 million to launch in fuel costs. But that was a trade-off they made. To do that in real time would have been maybe doable, I guess, these days. Not back then, obviously. But that would be a good teammate's response to help the person flying the aircraft, I agree. So that's a meta-model development by the AI of your teammates. Talking about that, thank you for that last point. And that's really a question for you, Fred, as the developmental psychologist of the AI develop. And to do that, you're going to try to embed or give the AI some kind of an internal model of representation of the human it is designed to support. Is that possible? Is that something you think about as a person that cares about skill acquisition and other things like that? It's a good question and in many ways gets to the heart of the matter. It's certainly the case that in order to do the kind of intelligent activity that Greg was just outlining, you will need to have within the AI some model of the human. And in many ways, this falls under the umbrella of sort of theory of mind. That is, that the AI needs to have a theory of mind of its humans. And the humans, I think, need to have a theory of mind of their AI, right? So that goes both ways. And that kind of understanding will enable, hopefully, the kinds of performance gains that Greg was just alluding to. One important thing to think about, though, is that if we are assuming that the AI evolves over time, and it doesn't have to be the case, but let's make that assumption in this case, and let's assume that the humans evolve over time, then you know that theory of mind is not static. And so the idea here is that you can't just program something in that we know that Daniel is going to behave in the following way because Daniel might change. And I think that that makes this kind of a hard problem. 